Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. So this morning we're going to start a sermon series on Advent. It's a four-week sermon series. This week we will look at the Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah. Next week we will focus on the idea for God so loved the world that He gave. Uh, December 17th we will tell the Christmas story. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, Advent is the anticipation of the coming of Christ. On Christmas Eve, we will connect the first and second comings of Christ together and look and see how the future return of Christ will, uh, is our blessed hope and promise. So this morning, normally, we spend time focused in a set of verses, very focused on just one passage. Today is going to be a little different. It's going to be a survey of several Old Testament passages as we find Jesus in the Old Testament. So our reading this morning, you would think would be from the Old Testament. It's not. Uh, it's from the book of John. John chapter 5 and verse 35. This is page 890 in your pew Bible. So John chapter 5, reading through verse 39. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. But the testimony that I have, so this is Jesus speaking, He says, The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. And you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He sent. In verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think them, that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. When Jesus refers to the Scriptures, He's referring to what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus said, the Old Testament bears witness about me. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Spirit that is here this morning, illuminating our hearts, opening up our eyes and our understanding. We pray in these next few moments of time that we would truly see Jesus in all of the Scripture and that He would be high and lifted up, exalted in this place this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. No man, no human being has ever impacted the course of this world more than Jesus Christ. Our calendar is built upon the birth of Christ. Most people don't even think about it, but when someone asks your date of birth, and this happens to all of us often, I go to the pharmacy at least once a week to pick up something and they'll always say, what is your date of birth? And what I am telling them when I say 10-16-76, what I am telling them is I was born 1,976 years after the birth of Jesus. That's what we're saying when we tell people our birthday. Now, granted the calendar is a little off 
uh, probably four or five years. Um, I was probably born uh, about 1,980 years after the birth of Jesus. But nevertheless, the calendar is set and based upon the birth of a man. In a lot of universities now, it's common for them to say, we don't want you to write B.C. and A.D. in your paper. B.C. is before Christ, A.D. is Anno Domini, it just means in the year of the Lord, which refers to Jesus. So what they want you to write is B.C.E. and C.E., which just means before Common Era or Common Era. And I look at that and laugh and think that's a distinction without a difference because you're still saying the BCE is the common era, the, the mark, the line is the birth of Christ. I was reading something yesterday about one of the seven wonders of the world and it said it existed in 250 BC. And I said, we're even marking before Jesus as the number of years before he was born. All of human history is marked by the birth of a man. Even an atheist would have to admit that Christianity has shaped the world in ways that no movement can claim. As people who believe the Scriptures, we believe there is an eternal destiny for every person in this world, including everyone in this room. You will live in everlasting peace in God's presence. We call it heaven. What we're saying is in a restored, renewed, new heavens and new earth, a new creation, we will live forever in peace in the presence of God, or you will live in everlasting suffering. That is the only two options biblically for every person who ever lived. And the final destination of your soul is dependent on your belief and what you believe about this man who splits history, named Jesus. Jesus said in John 8, I told you you would all die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will all die in your sins. Unless you believe I am the Messiah, I am the One, that is your only hope. There is only one way to salvation. There are not five, there are not ten, there are not two. Jesus is the door for every person who ever lived. The man, Christ Jesus. And I emphasize him as a human being, as a man, because he was a historic reality. If you could get in a time machine and rewind a couple thousand years, you would fly to the other side of the world. You could shake hands with a man just like you and I. A man. But he's not just a man. He is the eternal God who was made incarnate into a human body. He is the Son of the living, eternal God. The dominant theme in the Gospel of John is that you must believe in Jesus. It's something like 90 plus times this idea is communicated through the Gospel of John, this idea of belief. You've got to believe. We know it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe. But that's not the only time. It's all through the Gospel of John. It's the dominant theme. I, I hope we saw some of that when we preached through our series on John's Gospel. It all starts with a faith that is placed 
into him as the Son of God. So who is this man named Jesus? Let's start with who he is not. He is not a created being. He is not a separate being from God. There was an ancient heresy called Arianism that detracted from the divinity of Christ and argued that he was a separate created being by God. It was as if Jesus had to climb up the divinity ladder, and this you'll find this a lot in ideas that you know he's not he did not start out as God. He has to find his way up to the status of being divine. There were ideas over the years that he did not become divine until his baptism, and there's just all these sorts of variety of ideas about the divinity of Jesus Christ. But the biggest one was Arianism. And it was such an issue that Emperor Constantine invited over 1,800 bishops from all over the land, the east and the west. Over 300 showed up. And these 300 men show up to this council that is in the city of Nicaea. And they come in hobbled. Some of them are missing eyes. Some of them are missing entire limbs. Because in the past, they had been persecuted for the gospel's sake. They were the ones that survived. And now, they're in a unique time period where Constantine, the ruler of Rome, is allowing Christianity and ordaining it. And he says, hey, there is this schism within the church, within the body. We have to figure out the nature of Jesus Christ. So there were other issues that were discussed, but most of the discussion centered around the nature of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus begotten from the Father or was He a created being? And I don't want to get too deep into this. It's not the main point of this sermon. But in that council, they said, we're going to condemn Arianism. And we're going to declare that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He is God of God. He is light from light. He is begotten, not made. And He is as the same substance as the Father. One of the most important ideas there was that we're not going to separate Him from the Father. There's one essence. We can call it substance. We say being. That this is what the church declares. There is only one God. And so they are able to incorporate Jesus into the the divinity of God and the existence of one God. And this is who Jesus is. And they went on to say, For us men and for our salvation He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and His kingdom will have no end. And from that day until now, Jesus has been continually mocked the last 1,698 years since that day. He has been mocked. He has been attacked, ridiculed, questioned, ignored, blasphemed. Questioned if Jesus even exists. We are in a secular age And the problem with being in a secular age is that it devolves into a satanic age to the point to where 
this past week, Cosmopolitan Magazine would share a story on how to have an abortion in a satanic abortion clinic. That's the world we live in. The satanic abortion clinic named Samuel Alito's mom's satanic abortion clinic. That's the name of it. Named as an insult to the Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. And so the story walks through the story of a 37-year-old mother who received this experience, is what she calls it, and says while she's not a Satanist, she decided to incorporate a few ceremonial elements into her abortion experience. Why not, she thought. The overall message simply clicked with her. And so, as it began, she would say, one's body is involatable, subject to one's own will alone. And the ritual would conclude by her speaking out loud, by my body, by my blood, by my will, it is done. And that's the essence of, like the, the essence of Satan, the essence of evil. We have all these things that conjure up, but ultimately the essence is, it's my will. It's selfishness. It's me first. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what the scriptures say, as long as I am taken care of. Me. My will be done. We say that phrase, it echoes, and we kind of hear the words of Jesus in the garden saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. You're never more like Christ when you say, not my will, Jesus, but your will be done. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, it's your will. And I don't know that we're ever more like the devil when we say, I don't care what you think, Jesus, but my will be done. And that's been going on since the time of Christ, the battle between my will and His will, and my submission and my surrender and His supremacy in my life. So that's the world we live in. That would have been unheard of for that to be in a mainstream magazine that's been around for decades, but that's the world we live in. But thank God there is still a faithful remnant of people in our world, the people of God, who still declare that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. So where do we first find Him in the Bible? So I'm going to invite you, if you turn in your Bibles, take a minute to, I, I want us to see this. I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see it in the text. It's page 3, so it's Genesis chapter 3. This is the the story of the fall and the sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve. So I'll start Genesis 3, chapter 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The blame game starts with the first husband and wife in existence. 
uh, yeah, Lord, it was, it was her fault. So the Lord turns to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord turns his attention to the serpent and says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prophecy of Christ. The offspring of the woman is going to have his heel bruised because he is going to step on the head of the serpent. It's a picture. It's a metaphor. The offspring is referring to Christ. He is going to defeat that serpent by stepping on his head. The defeat of your sin that you battle with this morning, that sin that damns you, and the security of your salvation by triumph of Jesus over sin, all of that was secured in Genesis 3.15. It's a done deal. My salvation, my triumph over sin, my, my Savior defeating the enemy is prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Now Genesis does not directly state that the serpent is Satan, Revelation 12, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. <clears throat> he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So there is a biblical precedent to refer to the Satan as a serpent and as a deceiver. And then that beautiful verse that Paul writes in Romans 16, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This is why God had to come in flesh. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... Jesus Himself likewise partook of the same things of flesh and blood, that through death He might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus came and walked among us in flesh and blood so that He could die, so that He could destroy the one who held the power of death. Several years ago, I, I led a, a 30 days of prayer in January where I would send an email out to the entire church on an email list. And what we did was we took um, something that was sent to us from a church headquarters, and it was the 30 days of prayer. And I would take that language and craft it to be specific to our local church. And I got to one of the days and I started to... to craft the words and make it personal to our church and it said pray that the devil would be defeated i stopped and i said well you're about two thousand years too late for that uh, that's what happened on the cross this is what happens at calvary satan loses the power that he has 
At the cross, with the death and resurrection of Christ, the offspring of the woman, who is Jesus, stepped on the head of the serpent, which is Satan, and secured salvation for everyone who is in Christ. So we see Jesus showing up in the beginning of Scripture, but He's actually present before then. Let's turn to John chapter 1. This is page 886. In your Bibles, a very familiar passage of Scripture. I, I quote it often. I read it often. We preached on it a few months ago. This is one of those passages of Scripture. And I know you could say this about all the Bible, but this is one of those passages of Scripture that you could read over and over and over and just continually see new depth about who Jesus is. In the beginning... This is the first words of this book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You notice how Word is capitalized there. It's giving this personification. This is the logos. This isn't just a word out of a dictionary. This Word has identity. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you skip down to verse 14, He's going to give us the identity of the Word. And the Word became flesh. We call this the Incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now when John starts a book out in the beginning, it would be like me today writing a book, and I start the words off with, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. Anybody that has read anything in school or familiar with any level of literature knows, oh, he's playing off Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. This is kind of what John's doing. When he says in the beginning, he is using the three words that start off their Bible. That's a clue. It's like, okay, John, where are we going from this? In the beginning, He's echoing the words of Genesis 1.1. John is placing the eternal Word of God within the creation story of Genesis. The Word was both with God, a distinction, and was God, unity. The Word is divine and it is of the same nature as God because it is God. And in the glorious truth, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So is John the only one that places Christ within creation? No, the writer of Hebrews is very clear. The writer of Hebrews starts his letter out, whoever this author is, and says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Old Testament. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and here it is, through whom also He created the world. The writer of Hebrews says that God created the world through His Son. And gives this wonderful 
description of Jesus. I love these words. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So everything that is going on in the universe today, all of it is upheld by the word of the power of the Son of God. So Jesus doesn't just show up in Genesis 3 with the promise of the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. Really, you can't pinpoint a starting point because as God, the nature of God, He is eternal without beginning. There never was a time when He was not. In Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham and tells him that he will be the father of many nations. So you have the covenant in Genesis 15, and it expands into chapter 17, and then hear the words in Genesis 22. I will surely bless you, says the Lord. I will surely multiply your offspring. This word offspring keeps coming up. Like in the Old Testament, that the offspring that comes from the individual. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So right there, Old Testament, the promise from Abraham, from your seed, from your offspring, You'll see it in some older translations, seed, ESV is offspring. It's the same, the same meaning. So I'll invite you once again to turn to Galatians chapter 3. This is page 973. Hey, do you care to shut that door? It came open. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 7 through 14. I like having these pew Bibles because you can give page numbers, and I know some of these smaller books are harder to find. I like seeing preachers say, let's turn to the book of Nahum, and people who have been in church for 75 years are like, mm, concordance. a friend of mine that preached a sermon series through the minor prophets and it was wonderful uh, because those books sometimes are kind of neglected. So this is Paul writing Galatians 3. So remember the, the verses I just read from Genesis. Paul is comp commenting on these and he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who are the real Jews today? It's those who are in Christ. Paul uses that phrase elsewhere. The, the true Jew is the one that is one inwardly and not one outwardly. That is who the sons of Abraham are. Those who are of faith. Verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. 
I love that verse. God is preaching the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There's no quotation marks that exist in Greek, but in our Bibles there are quotation marks there because it's telling us that he's quoting. Paul is making a quotation from the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he's going back to the law, the Torah, where it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. What does that mean? That means that thousands of years ago, your security as being one who is in Christ is secured before Christ by promise that God gives to Abraham. So drop down to verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So what does he mean by guardian? He's referring to the law. This is how Paul describes the law is that it was a guardian. We're not under the law, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, you see what's happening there. God gives Abraham a promise that through your offspring all the nations shall be blessed. He says the offspring was Jesus. And now that you are in Christ, you have claim to the promises that were given back here thousands of years ago to Abraham. There is a pure line of continuity, one thread of the gospel, starting in Genesis. Jesus is in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read you the, the verse where God makes a covenant with King David and says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. There's that word again. It's your offspring I will raise up after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. We call this the Davidic covenant. It's the covenant that God makes with David. Now, King David's earthly kingdom was anything but eternal. In fact, it only lasts for one more generation. His son Solomon takes the throne, and after Solomon... The kingdom is split into two parts. And after that, eventually, both kingdoms, the one of the north, Israel, the one of the south, Judah, they're both carried off into captivity, and it all comes crashing down. And there is no 
kingdom that exists today. There is a secular state of Israel, but there's no kingdom like this that you can trace back to King David. So what do you mean, Lord, when you say David's throne will be established forever? Well, Jesus himself would claim three times that these verses in the Old Testament spoke about him. The Jews know the Davidic covenant and the promise is coming. They're looking for a Messiah. Now, there's different schools of thought within Judaism back then about whether the Messiah would be divine. There were some that thought he would just be a, a man, but they knew that there would be a coming Messiah. So Jesus himself says, that's me. So how does Matthew open his gospel? He opens his gospel and says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right there, Matthew, first sentence. Jesus is the son of David. And what he does is for the next 17 verses in Matthew chapter 1, he traces the genealogy from Abraham to David, and then from David all the way down to Jesus. It's the famous begets in the King James. And so-and-so beget so-and-so, and so-and-so beget so-and-so. I heard a man actually preach a sermon from just that text one time. Um, but most of us don't. I have never preached a sermon from that text. We kind of read that in your, in your Bible reading plan. You read that and you're like, you're kind of skimming. Nobody is like really careful with that. They're just kind of skimming through it. Yeah, this doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. Why does it matter? It's because when God makes a covenant, He never breaks that covenant. When God makes a promise and says, this shall come to pass, there is nothing that's going to thwart or prevent the divine will and purpose of God from happening. It will come to pass. When Matthew writes that Eliakim was the father of Azor, it doesn't sound like a big deal. Who cares? Let me get down to, to the story. Doesn't sound like a big deal. I don't know anything about Azor. Don't know who he is. He's a random guy. It's in the, the genealogy. But what it means is that there's no chance that Eliakim is not having children because he's the bloodline. And God has said, this will come to pass. So hundreds of years later, some random guy named Eliakim, he's having a kid because there's a divine plan in place. God has always had a plan, and He never needs a plan B. God wills something, and it shall come to pass. Whatever God ordains is not only right, but it is a reality. It will happen. So Matthew spends 17 verses telling us about people who had children that would facilitate God's covenant to King David, all to set up verse 18. And then he steps back and says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Why couldn't he just start off his, his gospel with that? He could have. None of us would have thought anything of it. But he doesn't. He says, before I start the story, I'm going to show you how the promise of God to David is fulfilled. And he just traces the lineage, the lineage. When God promises, God delivers. The Psalms are filled with references. I mean, they are saturated with references to Israel's coming Messiah. 
I don't have time to go into all that. This is way bigger than one sermon. You could do a sermon series just on the Messianic Psalms. Uh, read Psalm 2. Read Psalm 110. Jesus is there. It's not even that hidden. It's like the, the Son of God is there. And the reference there as, as the Son is there. The language is there. Psalm 2, we see the foreshadowing of Jesus as the Son of God. Psalm 40, Jesus will be the perfect sacrifice. Psalm 78, Jesus is going to teach in parables. The Psalms are the... It, the book of Psalms is the songbook of the early church. It's the Psalter. They would have a separate book just called the Psalter. And this is the songs that they would sing. They're singing about a future promised Messiah. I wish I had more time to, to get into that. So where I want to close these last few minutes this morning is in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, just like all the rest of the Old Testament, is about Jesus the Messiah. Remember what we opened with. Jesus said, search the scriptures, because in them you have life, and they are they which testify of me. This is what gets him killed. He's claiming, I mean, can you imagine, if you don't believe this guy, the audacity of someone, they said, is this not the carpenter's son? We know this guy. He's just an ordinary guy. His dad's a general contractor. He's been a kind of an apprentice under his dad, probably learned the trade. We know him. We know his family. Who does he think he is? This ordinary guy stepping out and saying, yeah, actually the Bible, the Old Testament, that's me that it's referring to. It was a crime punishable by death. So the book of Isaiah, just like the rest of the Old Testament, points to Jesus. We talked about Isaiah two weeks ago. That Isaiah really is three different books. There's three sections that kind of serve as three books rolled into one book. The book of Isaiah. The second part of Isaiah is chapters 40 through chapter 55. And this entire section, this second section of Isaiah, is a collection of poems and songs that center around this figure that we call the suffering servant. Now, we believe the identity of that suffering servant is Christ, but that's the whole crux of the second part of Isaiah, is the suffering servant. Within the writings of 40 through 55, telling us of the suffering servant, are found the songs of the suffering servant. There are four of them. So there's four songs that comprise and speak of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, and I'll ask us to turn there for the last reading. This is page 613. Isaiah 53 is the last of the songs of the suffering servant. And it is a chapter that if you've been around church, especially at Christmas time, it's a chapter you're probably familiar with. So Isaiah writes, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces... He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I think you could sit somebody down and preach the gospel from this chapter. This chapter, Isaiah, has been referred to as the fifth gospel and for good reason because we see Jesus so plainly in the text. The gospel message is found in this chapter in the Old Testament. We think of the gospel as a New Testament story, but the gospel is is as plain here as it is anywhere in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the writings of Paul, especially the book of Romans, the more you read and study the book of Romans, the more you see that Paul has Isaiah in mind as a template of what he writes, especially chapters 1 through 8 in Romans. There's things there, as I'm reading there in Isaiah, I'm thinking of things Paul says in Romans 3 and going, he's not quoting him, but he's reworking what Isaiah says into his letter. I usually start, if someone said, can you tell me what the gospel is? Like, what is the gospel? There's an expanded answer that can reach all the way back and say, well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created man without sin. You could go back there. But if I'm trying to give a concise answer to what is the gospel, I would usually start by saying, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. That's where I usually start the conversation. And in verse 6 in Isaiah 53, he says, we have all gone astray. All of us, we're all sinners. We've all gone astray. Here is our hope is that everyone in this room have committed sin in our lifetime over the past few years and decades. We can go back decades and say, I've been a sinner for a very long time. 
the solution to the problem of sin the past few decades in your life was in the works before you ever existed. Before there was ever any of us, before the time of Christ, the Lord is moving upon a prophet named Isaiah to write these words and say, this is the one that is to come, this suffering servant. Write these four songs. Write these words in chapter 53. We were all led astray. But Jesus bore our sins. Jesus is the Lamb slain. The writer in Revelation said He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world before there was anything the Lamb was slain. The Gospel is not plan B. It is the one divine plan that God has had from the beginning. Ephesians 1, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will. So in Isaiah 53... We see the gospel. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore. These are just, I'm just going to give you 10 points of the gospel in Isaiah, and then we'll close. Number 1, verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore. Verse 4, and our sorrows he carried. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him by His wounds. King James, we would always say, by His stripes we are healed. The healing of your body is secure. By His scourgings, by His punishment... The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is where we, we get into the, the echoing of Romans 3. had this conversation with somebody this week. I said, who killed Jesus? Who is responsible? Well, I said, well it's the Jews. The, the biblical answer, who killed Jesus? The answer is God. Paul says it. You don't have to interpret it. You don't have to unpack it. Paul says these words. When he says in Romans 3, whom he, the he being God, put forth as a propitiation for our sins. It was God that put forth Jesus. That was the plan. When John 3.16, which seems like such a kind of a chipper, lighthearted verse that you hold up at ball games on a sign, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That gave isn't just that He sent Him into this world. That gave is that He sent Him into this world with the purpose of dying on a cross. So this is all found in Isaiah. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That, that means that every sin ever committed by every human being, you, me, Hitler, every sin was placed upon the body of Christ. And Isaiah says the Lord has laid on Him, that suffering servant, all of our iniquity. Verse 8, He was stricken for the transgression of my people. 
verse 11, he will bear their iniquity. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. If people want practical, relevant preaching, I don't know of anything more practical or relevant to your life than what I'm preaching this morning, which is the gospel, because you can't be saved without what I'm preaching this morning. This is Advent. This is when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. We join with those people before Christ who read the Holy Scriptures and said, we wait, we long for this coming Messiah. We join this December up till Christmas as kind of that anticipation, except the difference is He has already came. And what a difference He has made in our lives. I shudder to think the person I would be without Jesus. We sang the song this morning, He brought me out of the miry clay, He set my feet on the rock to stay. He did that. We are all filthy, immoral, vile people without the gospel. And I thank God for the difference that He makes in our lives. We all come to the altar. We all come to the cross on the same level ground, bowed on our knees before the cross of Christ. Next week, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We'll look into that. But this morning, I simply thank God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, thank you for a time together with your people. Not a somber time, but certainly a sober time for us to, to think and to meditate our hearts, our minds, upon who you are and what you did for us in the gospel. And this morning, I hope we have seen a little more clearly who you are in light of the scriptures. We see that for thousands of years, your people wrote about you, anticipated your coming, yearned and longed for a Messiah to come and deliver them and save them. And you did come and you walked among us, died in our place. We don't have a debtor's ethic. We don't try to repay you for what you've done. There is no repayment. We simply accept it humbly, and then we worship you for it. And we spend our lives as an act of worship because of what you did for us on the cross, the salvation that you provided for us, and the fact, Lord, that we are united in Christ and that through the working of the Holy Spirit, which is your spirit that is returned back, that unites us with you, that empowers us, that helps us to walk wisely and uprightly in a dark world. Lord, help us today. I pray a prayer for all of us that we would be more sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and that voice, that we would not walk as people who are not in Christ, but that we would walk differently. We would walk carefully and that we would walk mindfully in light of your soon return. And we ask this this morning in the name that is above every name, the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen. And dismissal, let's lift our hands together and thank Him. Jesus, thank You this morning. We honor You today. We leave this place worshiping You and honoring You and lifting You up as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We give You praise, You glory, and You honor. All honor is due to Your name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.